he was with us, and I saw him, and I said, how was your weekend? He said, well, I went to Wake Med. And I said, did you have a seizure? <laughs> he said, no, I didn't have a seizure. I went to get my Christmas gifts. <laughs> I'm like, I don't get Christmas gifts from staff at Wake yeah. Med. My name is Willie. Welcome to Voices from the Village. So I was just I was looking at these before you got here. Oh, that's my that's my hole now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I stayed in that hole about three months or longer. How was that compared to other places you lived when you were homeless? That's about the best place I had when I was homeless. In twenty twelve. You stayed with us for like 90 days in a row, and we saw that your EMS transports went down a lot. You told me a story one time about going to Wake Med, and I said, did you go because you had a seizure? And you said, no, I went to get my Christmas gifts from mm-hmm. the nurses. Mm-hmm. That told me you went to the hospital a lot. Yeah, yeah, I went to the hospital uh, right many times. That, well, I went sometimes three or four times a week. For how many years? Uh, well, I was on the streets off and on for about 14 years. Mm-hmm. You started coming here. I started coming here in 2001 right. when this place was opened up. Cause I was about the 100th person on the, in detox, if I ain't mistaken. So when I knew that you, that you went to get gifts from the nurses, I thought that's pretty interesting. And then it made me think about how often EMS must have interacted with you. And they, they went back to 2010, and they said, yeah, we've 2010, we transported him 70 times, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. next year 50 times. And they didn't have, they couldn't go back further than that to look at it, but they did go back, and they got it, They found a bill for you, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember, you remember getting that bill? I remember getting a couple bills, but I got, I got one for a little less than a half million dollars, I think. Yeah, I thought it was like two hundred fifty thousand dollars or something. It was maybe more than that. Yeah, it was up there. What struck me about EMS was when you were here in twenty twelve and they didn't see you on the street, they were worried about you, and it told me that they really they came to know you and care about you a lot. So talk a little bit about your relationship with EMS. Well, EMS, I met a lot of good people. I mean. Some people, you know, some people, homeless people talk about they ain't, you know, they just throw them in the truck and take them anywhere, you know, to the hospital. But I ain't never had no words with them, you know, hard words or nothing like that. EMS has always been good to me. I mean, they've always come and got me everywhere I was at. They come and got me. I mean, I've been in the, tr- uh, in the bushes. They come in the bushes and got me. So I can't say nothing bad about the EMS. They bring you something to eat at times? Yes, yes. They, they looked after me a lot. Mm-hmm. They always bring me sandwiches and stuff. And make they, sure I eat. They knew what type of sandwich you didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that turkey? Yeah, turkey. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't eat turkey. <laughs> and they knew that. They, they knew yeah, they what, knew what sandwich eat. not to bring yep. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at Christmas, you know, around Christmas and stuff, they would bring me uh, plates and stuff. What kind of gifts would the nurses give you? Oh, they'd give me uh, nice shirts. Mm-hmm. One nurse over there give me a pair of shoes, give me cigarettes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So how long has it been since you've been homeless? About four years. And I know in the last three years, I think, you haven't been transported a single time by EMS to the hospital. I ain't been to the hospital. <laughs>
What uh, What would you usually go to the hospital for? Seizures. How many seizures do you think you've had in your life? I couldn't count them. Hundreds? A hundred thousand. Yeah. And why don't you? I've have, had hundreds here. <laughs> why don't you have seizures anymore? They say it was the drinking, and then they say something about with my brain, <laughs> and that called drinking and my brain didn't go together. Go together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And something would go wrong up there, you know, and and cause me to have a seizure. Yeah. Do you know why Willie? What Willie did today when he came up here? What did you do when you came up here today? I donated some clothes. Yeah. Some new clothes too, right? Yeah, brand new clothes. Got the name. I mean, got the price tag on them. I mean, that just is amazing. Yeah, because uh, I ain't never been able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, you're up here giving back. Giving back, yeah. What I got here. I hope you enjoyed this interview with the EMS. I'm Chris Budnick, and I'm joined uh, today by uh, Benji Curry with Wake County EMS. Evening, Chris. We uh, talked about wanting to do a podcast, and what we were interested in was uh, connecting with people in the community. Sure. And people that um, that we have intersected with, either have a close relationship with, or you know maybe just know about, but who kind of play an important role in the overall health and well-being of the, of the community. Absolutely. And, um, and part of the podcast is to help tell their story. So, me, you know, meeting with you today, tonight, sure. actually, we're second shift. Uh, you're 7 to 7 is your shift? That's right, 7 to 9 to 7 tomorrow morning. And um, so we're in uh, an APP response supervisor vehicle. So the, the APP stands for Advanced practice paramedic yes sir that's correct and uh this is what about 11 10 11 years old 12 years old this is the 10th year the app program launched in january of 2009 and we just celebrated our 10th year anniversary in the community uh, with our system out responding and helping folks we're excited about the progress we've made and the work that we do and uh, it's been a, a a great resource and asset for our community and do you think that the average uh, citizen in wake county knows what Wake County APP is? I would like to think so. I think there's always uh, an opportunity to kind of enhance that knowledge and uh, and increase their awareness. Uh, We've been very uh, involved in in terms of mobile integrated health care and really integrating into the community and the systems of care that are in place. Um, You know, I always say whether by default or design at two in the afternoon or two in the morning, there's there's always uh, EMS that's available to respond, and many of these folks are connected and receiving services in a lot of different ways, and um, it, it only makes sense for us to be integrated and involved um, in their care to, to help provide them with the resources they need to, to help get them the best outcome in their situation. What, what's the origins of APP, and what's the, the goal or the kind of mission of APP? So when we started in, in 2009, uh, kind of the one, one of the founding goals of the APP program was kind of um, respond, reduce, and, and redirect. It's a group of specially trained paramedics that have gone through uh, some additional training. Uh, they're among some of the most uh, clinically experienced providers in the system. And, and the goal was, was twofold. 
Uh, one, it was to have a uh, clinically proficient resource available to assist our ambulance crews with high acuity calls or high risk situations. Um, and at the time, the, the county also had an initiative um, of respond, reduce, and redirect. And kind of how that um, tied the APP program into the county's initiative at the time. We may um, need to redirect this guy out of the middle yeah, of the Yeah, right. I know, right? With plenty of folks out tonight enjoying the nice weather. Um, so part, part of the response was to uh, be able to respond to critical time-sensitive emergencies. What, um, give me an example. What would be a critical um, time-sensitive emergency? Something as uh, could be a cardiac arrest. Uh, it could be a high acuity call, an MVC. Uh, someone who's experiencing a time-sensitive medical emergency, uh, severe respiratory distress, uh, they could be having a neurological emergency. And the goal when they're in the response aspect is, is respond to that emergency uh, along with the ambulance and provide whatever type of clinical assistance and resource they may need. Um, kind of the second component that ties into the reduce uh, aspect of respond, reduce, redirect is there are certain patient populations who are frequent utilizers of EMS services. Sometimes they can be um, familiar faces, sometimes they can be uh, high volume utilizers, and these are folks that are uh, frequently using the EMS system. And part of our efforts are to, you know, in addition to identifying who these individuals are, kind of respond to whatever need they have, work with them, talk about the resources that are available, what do they have in place, and whenever and wherever we can, be able to reduce um, their EMS utilization by making sure that they have the resources that they need in the community that may be more appropriate for their care. Um, and then kind of the final component when it comes to uh, redirection deals specifically with our mental health and substance use population. Whenever uh, the, the, the mental health and substance use issues that face not only our community and our nation were obviously well identified. Um, we have learned and are very fortunate in Wake County to have a lot of other specialty resources that may be more appropriate for them rather than just taking them to the emergency department. So kind of the redirection component of the APP program incorporates having an advanced practice paramedic uh, who has some of that additional training, part of which is uh, included CIT or crisis intervention training to kind of help take a further and more in-depth look at a mental health or substance use emergency and, and evaluate that person kind of where they're at, you know, identify what their issue is. And if it's a primary mental health or substance use issue, uh, a lot of times we're able to be successful to redirect them uh, to a more alternative or appropriate level of care. In our world, we call it an alternative destination. But an example of that would be someone that has experienced a mental health emergency. You know, They may not have a medical condition that requires them to be evaluated by an ED physician. They may be um, medically stable and we can be evaluated and get them directly into um, mental health care in our community with some of our community partners uh, and agencies such as Wake Road or Holly Hill. And then that same concept also kind of applies to the substance use community. Uh, folks who may be experiencing a substance use emergency and or, you know, a mental health emergency if they have a co-occurring disorder is to kind of assist them where they are with the complaints that they have and determine if there's an appropriate resource um, for them. Obviously, an example of that would be kind of the ongoing relationship we had with you guys for a number of years where if someone um, is intoxicated or, or has a substance use issue and may not need an ER, you know, we can take them directly to Healing Transitions or Holly Hill, uh, Wakebrook or other community providers to get them that special care that they need as opposed to just putting everyone in an ambulance and taking them to the hospital. Yeah, so prior to 2009, that was kind of the only option. 
Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, it, it's important to note that there, there are a number of changes that kind of influence that one, obviously being the, the implementation of the APP program and this concept of kind of reduce and redirection. I think another component of that is when it comes to the, the substance use population, specifically with the opiates, you know, there's been some changes in legislature with law enforcement that is encouraging folks who may have a substance use issue or an opiate disorder to reach out and get that help. And in the past, you know, these folks a lot of times would experience an overdose. They may have to deal with EMS. They will be transported to the hospital. And then there was kind of the legal system that they would have to encounter with, you know, charges for paraphernalia and substance and that. And and the, the change in that has been to kind of bring down that barrier and in encourage folks to seek help for their emergency, whatever their crisis may be. And then this is something that we've seen in a change in our practice. Whereas, you know, prior to, to 2009 and as times have evolved, most of, of our response would include responding to that emergency, uh, administering, you know, naloxone or whatever medications were appropriate at the time, and transporting those folks to the hospital. As things have evolved over time and some of those changes in legislature, you know, we have increased uh, and, and kind of changed our approach. Sometimes these folks very simply will refuse to go to the hospital. And, you know, with different efforts, different grants, the, the public distribution of naloxone or, or Narcan, as it's more commonly called, has given us an alternative to provide folks with Narcan and leave them there while still encouraging treatment and linking them with other resources that may be uh, more appropriate for whatever um, issues that they're having. So it's, it's really been kind of a change um, for our folks, um, for our community, and most importantly, it's, it's been a better avenue and alternative of care for the, the, the end user, the patient, to get them the services they need. You know, as we know today, uh, with the program that we started with you guys back in April, you know, we've taken an additional step to not only respond to their emergency um, whenever it happens, is to follow up with them uh, with the peer support specialist, with the, with the ongoing working relationship that we've had with the transitions for, for well over 10 years to try and provide another, another layer of care and bring those services to the patient side. A lot to unpack there. So EMS played a, a significant role in advocating for what became the Healing Place of Wake County, now Healing Transitions, by saying in 1997, this was at the time uh, Gerald Brown, was the EMS director EMS at the time. At the time that's right. And he said, you know, 1997, we did 2,000 transports of individuals who are homeless and intoxicated. Their diagnosis is drunk. They get taken to the emergency department. They sit there. The treatment is time. And uh, they kind of clog up the uh, emergency department. Uh, they're not getting the, the right help that they need, so they're at the wrong place. Right. And it's having a ripple effect on uh, the rest of the community. Sure. And so that was uh, kind of um, one of the original ideas behind what became uh, Healing Transitions was get a non-medical detox that could be a place for people to sober up instead of... And so the, the, the changes have now allowed you guys to redirect directly to us. Absolutely. Uh, which, you know, when we first opened wasn't the case. And, you know, if you guys got involved, you'd ultimately have to take them to emergency department. Sure, sure. I think we first kind of developed a relationship when the first APP class was being trained and sure. EMS reached out asking for some uh, assistance with curriculum and uh, training around addiction and recovery. And, and the relationship's been, uh, you know, it's just been, been really uh, 
beneficial, and I think obviously to both to both sides. Sure. And, and if I and if I recall correctly, having been one of the individuals in that original class, I think you actually sure. came out to our academy and, and did a presentation about the services you provide, and, and and not only the services of Elam Transitions, but also some of the science behind yeah. um, addiction, which which I can say from from my perspective was incredibly helpful, um, as well as the others to kind of understand you know a little bit more about substance use disorder. Um, and, and, you know, talk about the strength of our relationship as it is developed over time. The education and, and the awareness of the services you provide is something that is now incorporated into the training of all of our ambulance providers, not just our advanced practice paramedics. It's actually one of the clinical sites that they go to so they can kind of get a firsthand kind of under the hood and, and behind the curtains look at the, the work, that, the special work that you guys do in the community. That's invaluable, you know, I think on both sides, you know, for somebody who's new to come in, see a place where folks are uh, engaging in positive change for their life. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we love having uh, folks come out who are either new recruits or in APP. Sure. So APP is different than kind of being on the ambulance. So you're, you're as we mentioned, you're in your own vehicle. Sure. And this may be a bad analogy, but you kind of feel like the free safety of uh, EMS. You know, you're able to kind of move around the field to where sure. extra coverage is needed. That, that's right. It, it's a great resource for the community, for our providers. And, in you know, the way that it works is there are a number of ways that an APP arrives um, on an emergency. You know, some of it is an automatic dispatch that's triggered by a series of questions whenever someone calls 911. And we send an ambulance along with an advanced practice paramedic because the reality is is there are cases and there are individuals sometimes who may be experiencing kind of a, a time-sensitive, you know, life-threatening or an urgent medical condition that does require going to emergency department. So we don't want to, you know, delay them getting that type of care. They're able to, the ambulance crews are able to kind of initiate that assessment and then either allow the advanced practice paramedic to continue on to continue the screening process or if it's clinically indicated, transport them to the hospitals. And, you know, it's, it's a very unique approach for us because this, this is an opportunity for us not to just respond to the 911 call for the emergency, but once these populations have been identified, we're able to reach out to them after the 911 call and take kind of a more proactive approach. And, and a lot of what we do is, you know, focus on whatever issues they're facing. And, and a lot of times it's uh, kind of what I call uh, identifying some of their uh, cation gaps, right? And some of that can be medication, identifying any issues with their medication, you know, communication, are they able to, you know, get regularly scheduled appointments with their primary care providers. And some of it is simple as transportation, you know, making sure that they know there's resources in the community to get them to their doctor's appointment, you know, where they can follow up to get the ongoing care that they need. You mentioned uh, a few turns back there uh, about the initiative we launched in April and you and I served. Uh, we co-chaired a subcommittee of the Wake County Drug Overdose Prevention Coalition. And out of our subcommittee came the idea well, it first came the recognition that EMS has been doing an increasing number of Narcan uh, administrations for individuals with suspected opioid overdose, much more than uh, in previous years, and uh, that there's a certain level of helplessness or maybe frustration or combination when you've administered uh, Narcan had a successful overdose reversal, and that's kind of the end of care for that individual. Sure. And so we uh, made the recommendation for uh, using peer support specialists, getting two, and so we started with Rusty and Gina, two individuals with 
personal opioid overdose experience and also personal uh, opioid recovery uh, experience. And so that launched in April, and, um, and that really kind of kicked the relationship to a whole nother level. Gina is uh, just accepted a position with North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. Absolutely, um, a very valuable community partner. Yeah, and and is taking uh, kind of her skills and what she's learned over the last year plus and continuing to do this work in that setting. But uh, you know, I heard from Justin today that you know uh, your colleagues took her out to lunch for. Uh, it just spoke volumes to they, me about the the they, relationship that has been. They, built they, between the APPs and Rusty and Gina and they, now Ashley. They certainly did. They they have certainly become a part uh, of, of our EMS family as well as uh, in the in the community. Um, I think that there were a few dry eyes in the room uh, last week uh, when we had our the rapid responder meeting and she shared with some of the folks in um, public health and human services that uh, she had decided to, to take a, 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 the next step in, in her career and, yep. and very, very proud of her. And, and I think for everybody that, that knows Gina, um, you know, she can call me a gorilla all she wants to, but she is one of a kind. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we will certainly not um, replace her as an individual, um, but I think one of the things that has, has been invaluable is, is having her and Rusty. And one of the things I was thinking about, do you do you remember, you know, once you and I were uh, appointed as, as co-chairs of the committee, you remember the very first thing we did? We, we changed the name. Yeah, we did change the name. We changed yeah. the name, and I, and I was kind of, you know, looking <laughs> back, I'm thinking, you know, we got a lot of folks from public health and human services, and, and the very first thing we did in the very first meeting was was change the name, and I'm like, I wonder how receptive they're going to be to this, but but at the same token, you know, I think we changed the game. Yeah, um, it was uh, it was the access to treatment uh, subcommittee, and right. we, we changed it to initiating and sustaining recovery, because sometimes that happens with treatment, sometimes it happens without treatment. And that's all, you know, we want to talk about what is our goal. We want to help people get to recovery and help them stay in recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That was the first thing we did. We, we changed the name. I feel like that helped change the game. And then you leave me high and dry, but, but uh, thank, thank yeah, goodness you, yeah. you gave me some good help with Shane and, and subsequently Justin, who have, have carried on the, the important work. And uh, it's, it's been a, a successful collaboration, uh, to say the least, I think. Yeah, so... Uh, I don't know the numbers real well, and I don't know if you know the numbers real well, but I think Justin says over 300 people have been... Yeah, so, you know, one, one of the things that um, we talked about in the in the very early stages of this was, you know, a lot of the things that, that we do are evidence-based and data-driven, you know, for a number of reasons. One, we want to make sure we're doing the right thing, but two, if the results are, are reproducible in other communities, we certainly want to share and collaborate, you know, how to do that. So there has been a lot of, of collaboration. There were a lot of meetings about kind of determining, you know, the effectiveness or the success of this. And, you know, b- before we get into the specifics of some of the numbers, I think one of the things that, that we talked about was, uh, you know, not only just measuring the effectiveness of what we're doing, but kind of what does that success look like. For, for this, uh, the vulnerable population that we're working with, uh, the, the demographic, the difficulties and challenges that they face, success for some of these individuals may be not uh, obtaining complete recovery and, and achieving sobriety for some of these folks. It may be, you know, if they choose to continue these risky behaviors, you know, having safer resources and alternatives for them. 
which I think in and of itself is, is invaluable. Uh, you know, having the resources that, that they need uh, to continue that behavior. And then ultimately, you know, as they move through the process, you know, and move into recovery, being able to sustain that. Uh, and it's been, it's been rewarding. I, I think without getting too particular and exact, you know, I think the numbers that Justin has put out is there's been over 300 unique individuals that we've contacted, um, you know, specifically, you know, the program with us started in April of 2019, and, and I think he's, the, the numbers show that there's an average of 200 contacts and attempts that are made with these individuals to follow up and engage them. But well over, you know, half of these individuals, I think closer to 60%, um, have been linked with some type of service. Service and resource. And then there's that continued outreach from uh, those individuals, from Rusty, Gina, and now Ashley, who are just continuing to stay present and, and follow up. Sure. And, you know, so I've heard things, you know, like uh, one guy reached out and said, hey, uh, Rusty, I'm, you know, I got your name from another guy. And uh, this guy hadn't had an overdose or anything, but he'd heard from a buddy that had a reversal, you know, like, if you want some help, contact Rusty, right. you know, and so the words, like, words on the street now, you know, like, right. if you need help, here's who to call, I've heard stories of people coming out of uh, being reversed, and uh, first thing saying, you need to get in touch with Gina for me, you know, sure. and start saying these people are becoming real active and important components of uh, engaging a, a population that's often overlooked and uh, difficult to, to get connected so and, and I think you know an, an important uh, an important point to highlight is that you know when, when you talk about the overall success uh, prior to us starting this initiative in April uh, of 2018 none of these folks uh, were receiving that follow-up care um, and treatment you know so when, when you talk about kind of the pre and post success you know we're, we're very excited about the results that we've seen so far because we know prior to this you know our response would include responding to these individuals trying to engage them and seek treatment in the time and the folks would be hesitant and resistant to that so you know I, I recall you saying whenever you came and, and, and shared you know kind of the, the roots of the, the original healing place and healing transition was you know the, the non-medical detox and homelessness issue, you know, prior to initiating healing transitions at Healing Place, we know what the results were. Yeah. It was it was nothing. Um, and and we have seen, you know, through the efforts and the initiation of the what we've called the rapid responder uh, with the peer support specialist followed up, we've certainly seen better alternatives and, and have achieved great outcomes for that. And, you know, I think it's just a testament to the important work that you guys do, that all of our advanced practice paramedics do. And it is certainly, certainly just as the picture we talked about earlier is it takes a village. You know, I think the thing that's the most, you know, unique and, and rewarding in a lot of this is it takes a village and a lot of our community partners stepping outside of our traditional approach to overdose mental health and substance use disorder you know we certainly couldn't do it without you know our hospital partners without uh nc harm reduction coalition without our medication assisted treatment clinics in the community uh community health public health yep. human services and you know everybody coming together and taking a very outside of the box approach and an, an atypical response to a kind of an atypical problem to come up with an innovative solution to what is a, a very complex demographic and difficult problem and I my speculation is that it's got to help uh, the paramedics too, who kind of now feel like there's something else they can do. A absolutely, I, I think two things that come to mind um, 
when I, when I think about you know our providers who were in the streets, kind of boots on the ground, respond to the emergencies, is is the first is, you know, some of the stigma you know that, that you and I know has existed a long time in mental health and substance use treatment and responding to the same individuals over and over, it's it's a real thing and it's there. Um, and by having all of our EMS providers come to your facility to kind of get, as we said earlier, a behind-the-scenes look at what's actually done and helping them understand that this is, to me, it's synonymous with specialty care. You know, and I've said before, there are specific resources and specialty patients that receive specialty care. Some of those could include a burn patient going to a burn center, a trauma patient going to a trauma center. And, and this kind of adds to the signs of getting specialty treatment and care um, to these individuals who are experiencing, you know, a substance use disorder. I think the other piece that's interesting is if you recall, you know, there's obviously a lot of individuals that are advocating in different ways, some of it being, you know, legislative, some of it being process, some of it being a general statute. When Governor Cooper came uh, down to Healing Transitions and did a walkthrough and, and we talked about the successes we've had and we met one of the individuals in recovery and he overheard us having a conversation about naloxone and Narcan administration. And, you know, for whatever reason, I, I think that 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 interaction, though we were there for a completely different reason, we ended up hearing a story from him, which was a, a first-person perspective after the fact of an emergency of what it was like for someone that had received Narcan or Loxone to kind of wake up and yeah. and be facing responders and, and try and deal with and process everything that's going on in that moment. And as you well know, you know, one of the things that, that came from that is he subsequently came to kind of share his perspective, um, and, and we recorded, you know, kind of his story. And yeah, sharing yeah, it, that it with, became a training tool. It absolutely did, and sharing that with our responders has been invaluable because, you know, I think one of the things that, that he shared was, you know, yes, through the recidivism and seeing the same individuals, you know, on more than one occasion, you know, to not give up, to continue responding to these emergencies, to continue doing the important work that we do, and I think when you put a very personal story uh, and a perspective with it, it's very helpful for folks to kind of identify on a more personal level, you know, with what the individual has experienced and, and the value of and importance of their response and the services that, that they provide to these individuals. So, uh, again, you know, it became a great training tool for our folks to kind of open their eyes to the human aspect of what patients who experience um substance use disorder may be like and I think that that's been incredibly helpful. Yeah, it, it provided context, you know, you got the context of this guy's life, the things that uh, played a role in his his experiences and so forth and it becomes so much more relatable than just that individual that you're seeing in crisis. Absolutely. I think they titled, uh, I think, I'm many, I'm many Things, was that it? I'm Many Things. I'm Many Things. That was the name And he talked about, you know, being a father and being a veteran and being a Christian and being an athlete and being, you know. Absolutely. All these things uh, that he is. So, you know this story. Uh, 2012, there's a guy who'd been engaging with us since 2001 who I knew had a lot of EMS transports. I knew that because at one point 
he was with us, and I saw him, and I said, how was your weekend? He said, well, I went to Wake Med. And I said, did you have a seizure? He said, no, I didn't have a seizure. I went to get my Christmas gifts. I'm like, I don't get Christmas gifts from staff at Wake Med. No, very well. Yeah, and so I was intrigued by this, and I kind of said, uh, in 2012, he stayed with us 90 days, and it was like, this is he's never done this before. And I'm asking staff, like, how, how did... What's going on? They're like, well, you know, we've kept him in detox for like half that time, and we've given him a detox job, so he makes the beds and sure. does this and that, and we've connected him with uh, somebody to help him with some social service stuff and things like that. And and so I started. Uh, I was curious about does being engaged with us reduce? Is there any correlation with his EMS transports? And uh, you guys were really front. You know, like he signed a release. Like, hey, will you sign a release so I can look into this? Sure. Okay, so he signs it. I contact you guys. Yeah, we can go back to 2010. And so in 2010, you guys responded 76 times and transported him 70 times. And uh, he spent, uh, I think, like 40 days with us that year, not consecutive. Next year, it was like 50 transports, maybe 140 days with us. And then 2012, it was like he spent well over 200 days with us, and he had 18 transports. And, you know, he's not somebody that we ever thought would finish the program or have lifelong uh, recovery, but we started seeing, like, a reverse in the trend where he was getting more stable and staying in housing longer, and he'd have a few detox admissions, and his transports went down to, like, six a year and then one a year. And really for the last three or four years, he's had zero transports, uh, zero admissions with us. I know someone's thinking, like, well, is he still alive? Well, yeah, he is still alive. He came by and visited us I was uh, gonna say, in I, December. I seem to recall, I think, you uh, sending me a picture I of did him send when you he a stopped picture, by yeah. for, a, for a holiday visit uh, yeah. over the holidays. And, and my hope is I'm going to reach out to him and say, hey, uh, will you help record the intro to this podcast? Really? That's what I want to do. That, that, I, I think it would be awesome. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it would be great. So, um, so... What was interesting to me about that whole experience was learning the EMS perspective on it. Sure. First off, are there any misperceptions about paramedics in the community? Um, I would like to think not. <laughs> However, you know, there are a, a number of, you know, shows on TV now that depict uh, a lot of the, the work that we do. Um, uh, you know, I think it's important to know that at, at the end of the day, we do very important work in our community. Uh, however, we're also humans and individuals with life and the stressors that come with that outside of work. Um, but, you know... Well, I, you use stressors of the work you do and the stressors ab- of just life. Ab- ab- absolutely. I guess the funny part is is um, not everybody pulls over when we have the lights and sirens on. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they think that you know we're just speeding up and down the road, and that, that's not necessarily you get, the case. You get the people that say, "Great, here's a pace car for me. I just need to get behind them." Right, yeah. right. And I mean, with with the ever growing you know traffic in Raleigh and and, and forty, it, it, it can be challenging at times. But you know, we try to cautiously and safely navigate our way through. And I think the other thing is that's important is not all of the EMS responses are time sensitive critical emergencies. Uh-huh. Um, there, there are, a, you know, a percentage of those that are, but a lot of the work that we do is, you know, we, we do life-saving work uh, when it comes to, like, the, the clinical components, like cardiac arrest resuscitation. We're among some of the, you know, we've got some very good successes in our agency 
um, with the clinical components of cardiac arrest care, but there's a lot of what we do that is not necessarily a time-sensitive critical medical emergency, and a lot of what we do, there's components of, you know, social work that are involved. So, so I, I guess the, the simplest way to put it is it's not all um, uh, blood and guts and glory. There, there's a lot of um, yeah. non-emergent navigation that goes on to, to help these individuals as well. So for our listeners, one of the things we like to do is not like invite people into our office to sit down and do an interview. We really kind of like to be where they work, live, exist. And so um, Benji's been kind enough to drive us around a little bit, but he's had to stay close in case he's got to go for an emergency. So here's one of the things that I saw with the gentleman I was just talking about. I saw a lot of compassion from some of the paramedics when they found out where he was, I started hearing things like, my God, we'd been so worried about him. We hadn't seen him in a long time. We thought something bad had happened to him. Well, and, 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 and that was, I mean, there was just this tremendous compassion for a guy who probably isn't always super friendly or cooperative when he's under the influence. But, you know, it's like people knew, people even said, we know what not to bring him to eat. You know, we know what he likes and what he doesn't like. Well, and, and I think one of those things is, you know, the, I think that there's there's an incredible power in vulnerability. And, and when people connect with someone, um, you know, particularly a patient on a personal individual level, that's what makes it kind of real and, and authentic. And that's where the, the humanness of being a paramedic and helping these individuals comes out. I, I will say for this particular individual, um, he was usually very receptive and warm to Mm-hmm. Um, EMS as as well in, as in law enforcement and there was sometimes that he may just want a cigarette and would walk up to the station and not necessarily want our services um, and our folks could, could identify with him. Um, it, now I will also say that not all individuals that we encounter are like that. We do have some that are more difficult to deal with than others but um, he, he was certainly an individual that many and many of our providers had helped on a number of occasions um, you know, there were times that he needed medical First attention, and we were able to get him that. Um, and there were times that he simply wanted to get yes, back ma'am. to you guys. Yes, and and I think that's the part that that is rewarding, is that, you know, once he had found an alternative that was available to him to not just go to the emergency department, it became rewarding for our providers to say, you know, this, this is getting him the type of services that he really needs. And, you know, to kind of add to that, one of the things that we've noticed in the work that we've done with the rapid responders and the, 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 the follow-up from the, the peer supports is that folks who are actively engaged in frequent utilization of EMS are among some of the most difficult and vulnerable to connect with services. And that, I think, has been one of the highlights and the successes of having Rusty and Gina uh, and Ashley available from the peer support perspective is, you know, they're in a very vulnerable time. Um, and we found that reaching out to them after the emergency, kind of after, you know, the, may, maybe some of the effects of, of the overdose has worn off, and there's an opportunity for a moment of clarity to provide them with a different resource, and, and, and we're happy that that's been uh, a successful opportunity for them, but I think that that's been an important part of connecting with these individuals is the ability to follow up kind of in a time-sensitive manner, and 
the concept of peer support is it's, you know, a lot of times these folks may wake up, they see a lot of badges and police and uniforms, and they may not kind of differentiate between law enforcement and public safety, but to see a familiar face and to hear a personal story from someone who has walked in their shoes, who's experienced that vulnerability, who has felt hopeless and helpless, and to have someone who can speak their language that they can identify with has, has been great for not only our providers, but as well as the patients to be able to identify with someone on a one-on-one level. So I, I'm a little preoccupied. Like, So the 70 transports in 2010, do you think that was a high for him, an average, a low? Or? Well, you know, if, if, if you look at it um, over his history, that was a, a, a fair number of transports for him. Not, not quite at the 10 a month mark, but, but very close to five a month, which is about once a week. Um, you know, so we do have individuals that are on a higher side of that spectrum. Um, I would say that that was probably about average for him. Um, so I can assure you that there are individuals that we see on a far more frequent basis. And we're fortunate enough now with the work that APPs do is to try and identify who these folks are and engage them before we get to that threshold of responses to try and prevent that. So I mentioned to you before we started, we're coming asking in each interview for the guest to provide a, uh, a recommendation or suggestion for the name for this podcast. Yeah, you, you hit me with that right out the bat, and I've, I've thought about it, and, you know, my with my creativity. I, I think one of the things I would, I would think about is this is our outside-of-the-box approach. I guess I would call it riding in reverse. Um, you know, the, the historical response of EMS would be responding to reverse and overdose, and this is, I don't want to say backwards, but we're taking a different approach. We're mm-hmm. not waiting for that person to call 911 and experience that overdose. We've already responded to that. We've reversed our approach to say now we're going to go out back to those individuals after they've called and kind of backtrack and bring resources to the patient side. So maybe that's kind of, you know, a, a catchy riding in reverse or reverse conversation. Reverse conversation, riding with the reversers. You and uh, one of your colleagues have come out and, and run with the, the Recovery Run Club. As we ran tonight uh, along the Dix Trail on the three-mile loop, we went past where there were about seven or eight RPD SUVs doing training of some sort. And so some of the one of the participants said, does anybody have any warrants? <laughs> and then somebody said, said something to me, and I said, listen... I don't have to be fast. Well, I just need to be faster, faster than you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you know, shout out to, to Justin and the folks at Oak City Recovery Run. You know, I have come out before uh, and run with the Run Club. Several of our providers I have. I brought my son out one night. Yeah, yeah. Um, you couldn't ask for a better backdrop, the, the downtown view from the Dorothea Dix Park. Um, you could ask for a flatter backdrop. You could ask for a flatter backdrop. And, you know, I, I was talking with someone the other day. You do not realize how many hills there are, number one, inside the Beltline, but number two, specifically around Dorothea Dix yeah. Park. Um, the, I think the three-mile loop, I felt pretty good. And, and you know, one night I, I got ambitious and said, you know, I think I'll do the five-mile. Um, that was a decision that I regretted for a couple of days afterwards <laughs> with some of them of the uphill runs. But that, for me as a provider and just as a person, um, was really empowering because, you know, was able to see some folks that I had actually responded to in the yeah, past yeah. and to see them in a different light and be able to communicate, you know, it's been rewarding to see them after that emergency and see them engage in recovery and, and, and doing well. And it's just a good cause, you know, yeah. folks from F3 have participated, but, you know, being involved in, in a different aspect has been rewarding as well.
Voices from the Village is hosted by Chris Budnick and edited by me, Bear McBride. Special thanks to Benji Curry of the Wake County EMS Advanced Practice Paramedic Program and to Willie for introducing the episode. Music is by Vibe Tracks. Healing Transitions is a nonprofit recovery program for homeless, uninsured, and underserved individuals struggling from alcoholism and other drug addictions in Wake County, North Carolina. For more information, visit our website at healing-transitions.org. That's healing-transitions.org.